matchup against their own mind. Today, I am talking with Wes Woodson. Wes works at The Hidden Company, a story-driven media platform whose goal is to empower individuals and talk openly about anxiety and mental health. Wes is also a professional speaker who has traveled around the world speaking to over 3,000 students, parents, and teachers about prioritizing mental health. Throughout the episode, we talk about so many different things, um, from experiencing anxiety at a young age to his own time in an outpatient facility. I know you all are going to learn so much from us like I did, and I can't wait. So with that, let's get into the episode. Wes, thank you so much for coming on The Mental Matchup. I am extremely excited to have you on and chat all things mental health, your book, just everything in between. Um, so to kick us off, can you can you tell the, the, the Mental Matchup audience a little bit about you, what you're doing, and kind of what you've done? Well, first off, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I know it's been a long time coming. I think we connected back in like what the beginning of may i think if i had to guess and now i'm here but i'm excited to be here uh, like you said before my name is wes woodson i am a professional public speaker and entrepreneur i run a, a brand called the hidden company and so we're a media company that promotes self-acceptance and self-love and we want to empower other people to be their unapologetic selves every day in their lives. I'm also the author of the book, I Have Anxiety, So What?, where I talk about my own mental health journey, and I look to share my story to open up the door for other people to do the same, talk about their own mental health challenges. And yes, I'm excited to be here to share my story with you and the you're a wonderful audience. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to have you. Can we can we start off with like diving into childhood growing up was mental, I guess two questions because yeah. of your book. I'm interested to know one was mental health ever discussed in the household at the dinner table mm. in your direct community. And two, when was the first time you kind of started struggling with anxiety? That's a great, great question. So I grew up in a suburban neighborhood called Sharon, Massachusetts. Now, if for those who aren't familiar with Sharon, I'll, I'll describe to your listeners, it's your stereotypical suburban neighborhood where everyone knows everyone. It's kind of small. Uh, I guess geographically, it's 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 right next to Foxborough, which is famously known where the Patriots play football, right? So I would all, I actually live so close to the stadium, I always say I could hear the games from my bedroom window. But Sharon was this town where I guess everyone was putting off this image of like having it all well put together. I mean, you had to dress a certain way, you had to talk a certain way, you had to like walk a certain way. And my parents kind of had those kind of expectations of me and my older uh, older siblings, my two older siblings, Mikey and Shannon. And I guess my household, we were all trying to perform at our best because we were one of the few people of color in the actual town. So with that alone comes this tremendous stress and this tremendous, this tremendous idea of performing and putting it all put, like having this all put together type image. But at the dinner table specifically, 
mental health was never really conversed about. Um, and I always say it's actually very interesting because my mom is actually a mental health therapist and she actually works with students all the time, right? But the stigma within the black community is we don't have these kind of conversations. So even though my mom has now since come around, right? It was very hard for her to see her son struggle with anxiety. And my dad, he he worked in corporate America. He he didn't have these kind of conversations with with me about my feelings. It was more so about sports and uh, about how school going, you know, things of that nature. Never very much about our feelings. But it wasn't until I got older that my mom and dad and my brother and sister came around to having these kinds of conversations today. But when I was a kid, it was never, never a conversation at all. Now, the earliest memory I have of me having or experiencing a mental health challenge, that was in the third grade. That, that's my earliest memory. Because I guess in third grade in Massachusetts, where I'm from, we took this big standardized test called the MCAS. Now, like the MCAS, I, I, I hate that test so bad, but it was kind of like every single time I would take like a practice exam of that test, I always describe my body going through like this, this like weird change. I mean, I get like sweaty armpits. I get this weird, uncomfortable feeling in the pit of my stomach. I'd have like this weird chill, like dancing up and down the back of my spine. And I remember I had all like these thoughts, like racing through my brain, like so fast. Like, what if, like, what if the guy who's sitting five rows ahead of me, what if he's on question number 26 and I'm still stuck on the first question? Like, what if the girl to my right is going to cheat off my paper? I don't want to give that girl bad answers. Or like, what if this and what if that? And like all these what if questions, I remember like the tests would be over before I thought I started. You know, I'd be the last kid in the class to hand in the exam. And it was then in third grade, I was diagnosed with test anxiety. So it's a form of social anxiety, performance-based anxiety. And social anxiety had followed me all throughout my life. And it still is with me today, right? Um, but that's the only thing I have in third grade experiencing anxiety. That's so interesting that you can yeah. like pinpoint. Because when I, I think back to third grade, I have like one memory and it's of like this guy I had a crush on uh, sitting a little bit different. This uh, guy I had a crush on Elliot Cunningham. He uh, took a crayon, a green crayon, and he put it next to his nose and he pretended to like shoot snot at me. Don't uh, ask me why. After that, I didn't have a crush on him, but that's the only memory I have from third grade. So like for you, uh, that's really crazy that, I don't know, you can pinpoint it all the way back yeah. to such a young point in your life. Yeah. Um I do, though, have a question about yeah. um, your mom. Yeah. Like, that's so interesting to me that your mom, what I, was she a counselor? Yeah, she's actually a school adjustment counselor in a school. And she so, she, school. so she's working with kids, and I'm assuming working, like, kind of what you said, working with kids through their emotional, is that yes. kind of what she was doing? Yes. And she wasn't having those conversations with you? No, not not as much. In fact... It was kind of like she would try to, right? Whenever I would come home with whether I was crying from being bullied or having a disagreement with my friends, she'd give me like the counselor answer of like trying to reframe your perspective, right? That's probably the closest I got to having a mental health talk with my mom was all about reframing your perspective. But when it came time to like my anxiety or really trying to like really work through the, the challenges I was experiencing in school. I remember my mom would always 
tell me to think better thoughts, right? And I think that was her way of trying to offer some support, right? I think now we've moved back and say that was kind of insensitive, right? But um, my mom was really trying to teach me how to not just tell myself I'm a failure, maybe try to entertain another thought in my head. But there was never a time we had a sit down conversation and it was like, how are you feeling, Wes? Uh, you know, how can I really help you? It wasn't really kind of like that. I think, like I said before, we lived in a neighborhood where we had to put off this image and it was just anything that deviated from that well, it was kind of swept under the rug. So with, with testing anxiety and that being so early on, like, what does that mean in terms of, are you then telling like kids in your third grade class, like I have test anxiety, are you getting extra time? Like, did you then feel even more on the outskirts because it's like, why is this happening to me and no one else? Like yes. what's kind of the fallout from that, especially at such a young age when your brain is like the most malleable, I feel like when yeah. you're so young. Yeah, I remember when I first got diagnosed and the school told my parents I should get all this this extra help. I I remember it was cool because I thought I discovered the next best thing of third grade. You know, I mean, I, I thought I thought I was the VIP of third grade. I mean, I like you said, I got extra time. I got a smaller room to take a test in. I mean, I remember I, I had this whole different teacher like sit with me. And like, she would like help me understand every single problem. She wouldn't give me the answers, but she would have like, you know, make sure I was comprehending what the question was asking me. And I remember I, whenever I finished my test, I go back to my classroom and there's like, there's one distinct memory that I have. So there was a, a kid in my class named Brian, right? And I remember I came back in the class after taking a, a test outside the class. And Brian was like, like, Wes, like, why did you leave the room for your test? Like, did you miss the test? And for me, I'm thinking, you know, I, I have this special privilege, right? I'm thinking, why doesn't everyone have test anxiety? So I go to Brian, I'm like, bro, I have test anxiety. You should get it too. I mean, you get all these things, right? You get, get the extra time, you get all this stuff. But then like, that was the first time where I started to realize that, oh, maybe this isn't so cool. <laughs> like maybe, maybe this is not so cool because like Brian, he was telling me how the kids in my class had started to say everything about me. They were saying like, I was too stupid to have the same test they had. So I had to go to a different classroom to have like a different test. And I remember feeling like a failure at that point. Like I remember I felt like, nah, this ain't cool. This is actually the opposite of cool. This is annoying. This is embarrassing. This is a, this is a, like, I was ashamed of getting all this extra help. And they were calling me all kinds of names like SPED. It was an acronym for special education, all these terrible things. And I was in the special education program from third grade all the way to eighth grade. Um, and through those five years, it was really, really hard, right? It was way, way hard because classmates, they saw all the extra help I was getting, right? But they didn't probably understand it. And I think as kids, we don't know that. We don't have the ability to express compassion and empathy. We just judge. So they were judging me, right? And I did all these different things to kind of prevent and suppress those uncomfortable feelings that we can get into um but I I was definitely called all kinds of names for getting all that extra help and I felt embarrassed to get that extra help yeah I honestly don't think it's that kids can't show compassion or empathy I personally both my older brothers have autism and mm. growing up it wasn't necessarily that kids like kids get to a certain age and they watch how their parents 
treat mm. other people. Mm. And that's what I really picked up when I was young was like how wow. parents would look at my brothers when they were having a temper tantrum in the grocery store. Oh. And then their kids started mimicking that same behavior. So like, I would say a lot of it from like my observation was like, it wasn't necessarily the kids. Like, obviously yeah. like my brothers, my brothers like bit people in like preschool. Like they, they were, you know, going through it. But when they got to a point where they were like, you know, could talk and communicate and like wanted to have friends and stuff, it would be like, oh, they're the, you know, Zimpolic boys, like wow. yada, yada. And I think it, I personally just watched it from like the parentals down. Wow. Um, so I don't know if you look back and that might make sense, might not, but that was my experience of like, I found kids who weren't as empathetic. Their parents were not empathetic. And then the parents who were like, very like much. So like, they're still young children who are like growing up and this is like terrible that they, you know, it's just like hard, their life is harder. Right. Like, it's like, that's a lot to juggle for kids, two of them being special needs, um but that's awful I think like people can just be mean that's really awful um how did that end up like manifesting later down the road like were you and my other question is I feel like kids who are kids who are athletes like tend to have not life be a little bit easier but it's easier to like make friends when you're the fastest one on the field or like when you're like doing whatever, excelling in a sport or excelling yes. in the classroom. And I'm assuming because the classroom part was like out Hard. because people were like, you know, you had text anxiety. What was it like being an athlete? And then like, I don't know, how did you deal with your emotions throughout that? Oh, that's a great, great point. I want to, before I've answered that question, I'll go back to your previous point. Thank you for saying that because I think when I was younger, I always took it as the kids couldn't see what was wrong with me because it was invisible, right? Mental health is not something you can always can see. It's not something you can always can hear. It's, it's your feelings, right? It's, your, it's how you feel on the inside, whether it's a chemical imbalance inside your brain. And again, you can't see that, right? So I think I always taught, thought that kids couldn't see what was going wrong with me. So it was easier to then try to understand it than to say like, you know, he's stupid. You know what I mean? Um, but you're right that even as kids, we model what we see at home. So it makes sense that you said that it's our parents who probably are behaving this way. And then we just repeat that behavior back in the classroom. So thank you for saying that. That's a great point. Um, but going back to, yeah, your, your original question about how basketball and athletics, that was one of the ways I suppressed my anxiety, right? Because that was one thing I turned to that no one could ever tell me that I wasn't good at, right? Like I played AAU. I was on the town, the town league, whatever. Um, but in my town, they had they had three teams. They had an AP, a, a team, a B team, and a C team. And I was in the B team. And even though I was one of the best players on the B team, I was never good enough to make the A team. And it wasn't until I was in eighth grade and I made the A team. And that's why I noticed like this weird shift where like anxiety had kind of followed me there too. And it was like before every single game, I was second guessing myself. Now I'm... I'm not like a great shooter. Uh, I'm very fast and I'm very quick. I can do the ball very well, but it was kind of like I would bounce the ball off my foot. I've been making very like silly mistakes that I normally wouldn't be making, right? But that was an example of how anxiety just kind of came over me and took over me. But I started to really kind of grow to hate the game of basketball, not only because the anxiety followed me there too, but because it was kind of like the only way I could make friends. 
what I mean by that is when I transferred to an all boys private Catholic high school, um, I was a basketball player there too. I, I was on the freshman team and JV team. I'll never forget it. I, I was in like this honors English class. And I, think I, I never told the story before, but I don't know why this kind of popped in my head. But I'm in this English class and we had just taken the test. And then after the test was over, I go to the bathroom and I'm next to one of my classmates. And, you know, we're just talking. And I asked him, oh, how do you think the test was? Right. He goes, oh, it was easy. Da, da, da. And it's like, I think in a normal conversation, you would ask the other person, too. Oh, how was it for you? But he didn't ask that. His first question was, oh, uh, do you have practice tonight? Or do you like you're going to go to the game time or something like that? It was something related to basketball. And I kind of like took that as like, is that all I am to you? Right. Like it, I'm more than a basketball player. Like, I, I felt like basketball was the only thing that people knew me for. Right. And they didn't want to attach academics to me at all. Right. And it, it, like even when I tried to apply to colleges, I, I was I, I wasn't seen as all the things I had done outside of basketball. Right. I mean, I didn't play sports in college. I, had to, I actually broke my leg my junior year of high school that kind of ended my competitive basketball career. Um, so I never got a chance to play at that high level. Uh, was it a dream of mine? Of course. But I was always seen as just an athlete. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I was like, there's so much more to me. Right. And I think when you also think about the race component, too, I was kind of like stuck between these 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 two different buckets of like, I know there's more to me than being just an athlete, but the world around me sees me as just an athlete. And it really, it really took a turn. It really made me feel like I was nothing. And it really kind of hurt my um, self-esteem. I will, I will argue that I think there is something wrong with just seeing you as an athlete and just seeing you as something or anyone as like what you do. Cause like yeah. what you do is not who you are. Yes. I think that everyone has like intrinsic value by just being a human being. And Correct. when we start to place value on them because of how like in corporate, how hard they, how high they are on the totem pole, or right. if they're a starter on the lacrosse field, like that's where it's like, that fills the wrong cup almost. And then for yes. that individual, it's like a downward spiral because what if they're no longer that yes. or what if they make a mistake? Like they, yeah. I don't know. I feel like, yeah. I mean, I'm, I've done it before where like, I've been like, Oh, like this, maybe I can learn from this person. And like that triggers like a friendship. Right. Yes. And then like, I get to know them as a human and I'm like, okay, they're awesome too. But like the initial attraction and alert was like, maybe I can improve this by like, yeah, you know, spending time before and after practice, like on the field with them. Right which like, isn't fair, right. To people. Cause then you could be counting other people out too. But right. I, yeah, I think that like, we need to place value on humans as humans and not because they do certain things that us as a society, like growing up have been ingrained in our brains is like, those people are like on a totem pole because they play professional sports or because yeah. they have like whatever in front of their name. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So I want to dive into your book. Yes. So tell book. us your book that you ha are showing me right now. Yes. I, yes, I love it. Um, I haven't read it. So can you yeah. give me like spark notes version? And then I'll, I'm have a ton of questions surrounding, surrounding it. Spark note version. This is going to probably come at a, just a hot, very high level and we're going to get into it, but I'm just going to get the spark note version. Like you asked, I was admitted into an outpatient program, which is based like an intensive uh, psychotherapy program you'd go to, 
uh, for five hours a day, five days a week in like group therapy based. And it's basically open psychotherapy where you really learn how to better manage your anxiety and your depression, your mental health challenges. So I was amongst kids who look like me, who are the same age as me, who suffer from depression, anxiety, eating disorders, self-harm, suicide ideation, all these different things within trying to learn how to better prioritize our mental health daily. And when I'm in this program, which I, I called it anxiety school, it felt like I wasn't going to school for my anxiety to better learn my anxiety. I was learning all these secrets, like all these things, like the importance of a routine or the idea that our thoughts and our feelings and our actions, well, they're all related. And I was like, why do I have to go to the lowest point of my life being suicidal, being losing 10 pounds within five days, not eating, not sleeping, wanting, contemplating the ending of my life, not, not wanting to talk to anyone about what, what's going wrong with me, all these negative things. Why do I have to experience all these negative things to get access to all this great knowledge, right? I'm wearing all these things. So instead of, I was like, how can I share all that I'm learning here and share with all my friends who I know suffer from anxiety and all the things that I learned in anxiety school? So my first solution was, I'm going to take all the notes that I have and I'm going to make it into a book. And that's what I have anxiety. So what actually is it's a culmination of all the things that I learned in anxiety school on how to better and unapologetically own my anxiety. I didn't say get rid of, I said, own it because I don't believe anxiety goes away. I think anxiety is always with you. You, you just get better at managing it. And I just wanted to create something that would have help you give you the tools to better own your anxiety and not feel so much shame around it like I once did when I was uh, younger. So that's what the book really is. It's my personal story combined with, with research and experience and small little tactics that I've learned to help it make it okay to have and talk about anxiety. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important because I don't think people really know, like conversations that I have with people, they're like, they don't know how to name it. I think that's the one thing that's like very common is like I had a friend who started having anxiety attacks like post-college and he had no idea what was going on. Like he was right. like, my heart rate's racing. Like I can't focus. Like I feel yeah. like everything's going wrong. Like he was like naming all the symptoms. And I'm like, I think yeah. that's anxiety. Like I'm like, yes. I think maybe you should like go to a therapist. And he's like, I, I just have never felt this, like didn't know how to name it. And like yeah. for a while wasn't like dealing with it because he was like, what even is happening to my body? Yeah. Um, why did you end up at anxiety school? How'd you get there? Yeah. So like I said, I had turned to basketball to suppress my anxiety. I had turned to trying to change my clothes to suppress my anxiety. Like I really thought if I was a whole this different person on the outside, no one ever asked what's going wrong on the inside. And then when I got to college, um, I ended up turning to relationships, romantic relationships. And I found myself in a very toxic, abusive relationship. But the reason why I stayed, and I think people who are victims of uh, sexual violence, domestic violence, victims in general, I believe we stay and we convince ourselves to stay because I feel like in my personal experience, I was addicted to this one person and what she was giving me, which was validation, right? If my anxiety is always telling me I'm not good enough and I have a person who's always telling me that you are more than good enough, I feel like it made me blind to all of her red flags. And the red flags were, I was distant from my friends. I was told who I could and could not hang out with. I had to always feel like I had to apologize for things that were not my, my fault. And the verbal abuse, well, that was only the beginning. And then the physical abuse came soon after. 
And when they, the night when the physical abuse became very, very violent and the police ended up getting involved, um, and I was told that I was a victim of domestic violence that night, that's when it felt like my anxiety came back 10 times, a thousand times as strong. Uh, I think all these negative thoughts were going through my brain about how am I going to tell anyone as a man that my girlfriend hit me? How am I going to tell, how am I gonna tell my, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, how am I going to tell anyone? What happened? Like, no one's going to believe me, right? So I really started to think it would be a lot easier for everyone else if I'm just not here anymore. I wasn't sleeping for five days straight. Like I said, I lost 10 pounds just like in, in a matter of a week. And I had no idea how am I going to continue living with this feeling? And it was at that moment, my lowest point, I contemplating suicide. And I, people always ask me, like, how did you get the help that you got? And in the book, I talk about it. Uh, there was a song that I always listen to. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with it. It's a song by Logic, 1-800-273-8255. Uh, that song, I listened to that song thousands of times, but I actually have never known what that song, like the title of the song was. And that night when I was really planning, uh, I was really making dangerous plans, I that song was on my phone. And when I Googled that song, it's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. And I called it. And I called it and I met a lady named Janice. And I had never met Janice in my life. Never have, like never have. Uh, but for 43 minutes and 15 seconds, I am the exact, like the exact timestamp. I told Janice like everything. I told her about how I felt being a kid diagnosed in third grade. I told her about middle school, about all those times I tried to reinvent myself through the clothes I wore. I mean, I spent all my birthday money back then on Abercrombie and Fitch to convince everyone that I was cool. You know, I went through that phase. I told her about basketball and how much I used basketball to escape. And I told her about the girlfriend I had in college. But it was at the end of that call that Janice was the one that like really led me to go hospitalizing myself. I checked myself into a hospital. She told me like, Wes, it's okay to not be okay, right? And that took down that like, that facade I had to look, I had to hold up all the time. Like I grew up in a household where we had to put off this image that we had all well put together. So I never wanted to admit to myself that it, it was okay to not be okay. I was putting all this pressure on myself to be okay. And I was turning to other things to convince everyone else and myself that I was okay, despite that I was not okay. So Jenna saying that to me, it kind of gave me permission to get this help. And I ended up checking myself into the, the hospital and the hospital gave me these, these three options. The first thing was I can be prescribed medication and sent back to a therapist who I was seeing. Two, I could actually live in the hospital. They call that an inpatient program uh, for a period of time. Or the third option was the outpatient program, which is you go to a mental health facility for it's like an offsite hospital uh, where it's a day program and you spend, like I said, five hours a day. It could be a minimum five hours a day uh, in this program. At the end of every, every day, you get a chance to go home. And that's what kind of gave the school like scenario where it's like you check in at 930 in the morning and you leave at 230 in the afternoon. Right. So it kind of felt like that. Um, and I, when I was in the program, I was learning all these better ways on how to deal with these unhealthy thoughts. Um, and I became better because of it. I, I learned how to build a toolbox, a routine, build a dream team, all these things I put in my book. And I'm excited to just put it in a book and share it with the world. And hopefully it can open the door for someone else to feel the same way I did at that moment. You know? I mean, wow. Thank you. 
thank you for sharing. Um, yeah. I know it can be, I mean, I know you public speak for a living or yeah. part of a living, but yeah. you do it often where I'm sure you're sharing a lot, but still I know personal experience, like it can still be just as hard sharing the 50th time as it can be the first time. So thank you for that. break and we'll be back with Wes in a moment. I'd like to take a second to talk about Morgan's Message, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Morgan's Message is a nonprofit founded in 2020 to honor Morgan Rogers. Through amplifying stories, resources, and expertise to confront student-athlete mental health, we are building a community by and for athletes and providing a platform for advocacy. Morgan's message strives to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental health within the student-athlete community and equalize the treatment of physical and mental health in athletics. To help us take a shot at mental health, to support our mission, or to find out more, head to morgansmessage.org or follow along on Instagram at morgansmessage. Let's get back to Wes. I don't think we've had anyone on. We had one person on who talked about um, an abusive relationship. And I had a friend in high school who was in a really, really rough, emotionally abusive. Well, it got pretty physically abusive too, but emotionally abusive. And it was always really hard watching him go through that. Mm. Um, And so, and yeah, I mean, it's like, you're always, I feel like, the idea in your head is always like men are the abusive ones in relationships. Like that's kind of what's always portrayed in media or in like movies. It's like the woman running away from the man and you don't really realize that like it can be the woman and the man. And it can, I think anyone who it's hard, right. It's like external validation and you, you convince yourself that you really love them and that they really love you and that they don't mean it, that they're going to change, that it's a one-time thing, or I did something to upset them. This is my fault. If I were better, they wouldn't react like this. I think for young kids, it's like their first relationship and they don't have, or like they grew up where like, you know, they have like unresolved trauma from their parents. Um, yeah, which it's just all around. It's, it's really, really hard. And, and so I'm, I'm happy you're here. I'm really grateful you're here. Thank you you. to Janice. Um, Janice is a rock star. Hopefully she's helping so many other people. Um, but that is, that is crazy. Okay. So you go to anxiety school. Yes. Can you give us two of your favorite tips, tricks that you talk, you can talk, if you talk about them in your book, great, but like two tips and tricks that you learned that you feel like by implementing and by learning have turned your life around. Yes. Okay. The first thing that when you asked that question that came to my mind instantly was, so in anxiety school, they gave you a bunch of handouts, right? So like the reason why my, my book cover is, is this like green color? Is this green color? Is that the color of the books or the handouts that they give you? No. So they gave us, yes. Well, all right. So they gave us this big folder that we had the handouts in. So the, the color of the folder was green. So that's why I made the cover of this book green. Um, but so one of the handouts they gave me, I'll never forget it, 
on the top of it, it was a blank paper, which was like, I was like, whoa, like, what is this? Because most handouts you give us is covered with words. And why, why isn't this one have words on it? But it only had like four words at the top. And I never forget it. It was rewrite your story. And I like changed, like, I was like, whoa. And I thought back to all those years, my mom was saying like, try to change your thoughts or how to change, change the things that you're telling yourself. But the exercise that I actually walked, ended up walking myself through was rewriting the story of that night where things became violent in the relationship. And I remember, like you, like you said, just now, when you had that friend back in high school who was going through a very abusive and violent relationship, uh, some of the things that possibly that person was saying was like, it's my fault. And that was the biggest thing I was telling myself was it was my fault. So the exercise I, went, I had gone down through is rewriting what happened, but trying to change it into saying it was not my fault. I, did not, I, did, I didn't do anything to deserve this. It's what happened. Um, but walking myself to the exercise, it actually introduced me to the idea that we are storytellers of our own mind. And we have the idea of trying, we have the, we have the power of, well, it takes practice. It's not going to be perfect on the first try, but it takes practice to learn how to rewrite that story that we're telling ourselves. Because I realized that my anxiety, it felt like there was a story that was just on repeat. It was a story of you're not good enough. You're a failure. You're unlovable. You're not good looking enough. Like it was all these things rooted in these on these insecurities and core beliefs, right? And it's the idea that we have the power to actually challenge and change those core beliefs. But the second thing I would love to say and share with your audience is the importance of a support system. Now, yes, woo -woo, support system, but you can relate to this. So I personally, going back to my first point of rewriting the story, I love the idea of reframing. It's actually rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy of, you know, the fact that your thoughts and your feelings and your actions, they're all related. But I love to reframe support system. So like I said, I am a big basketball fan. And the dream team with Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, that was like a big inspiration for me. So I'm like, you know, I don't need a support system. I need a dream team. And I need a dream team. I need to find teammates that are, are going to be great for me. Now, a bad teammate, in my opinion, using this metaphor, a bad teammate is someone that hogs the ball, that, that when you lose, they always say, it's your fault, not my fault. Like, I did the best. Like, it's your fault, da, da, da. They're not really supportive. A good teammate, you know, they're there for you. They're consistent. But, you know, they still have their own thing they're going through. They want to get their points up. They want to get their assists up. They want to get their stat, their stat line up. But they'll support you. They'll pass the ball sometimes. But that great teammate, that great teammate, they're on the bench with you. They're cheering you on when you're in the game. They're there trying to actually, after, after practice, walking plays through with you, doing all these things to support you on and off the court. That is a great teammate. And for me, I was trying to find those great teammates in my life. Right. So I had to find those great teammates. Then I had to find a coach. Oh, a therapist is my coach. And then on top of that, every team has a playbook. Now, what's going to be in my playbook? How am I going to win at my anxiety? How am I going to win these challenges that I face every single day? Okay. Whoa. One play I have is I love to exercise. I love to lift weights. Love to go for walks. Love to go for runs with my girlfriend today. Uh, I love to write. I love to work in my journal and kind of dump all my anxious thoughts onto a page. I love to pray and meditate. I love to listen to music, the logic song, like obviously like I love doing all these things together. I go to therapy, but that's what my playbook is, right? But that's so attached to my dream team. So I always say those, those things I talk about at length in my book, 
But yeah, the dream team and rewrite your story. It's one of the most powerful things I learned in anxiety school. I love that. I, that, that is awesome. And I think what's yeah. awesome about it is it's really digestible, yeah. right? Especially for anyone listening who's ever played a sport. It's like playbook. All right. What's in your playbook yeah. coach, you know, therapist, whatever that person looks like, like mm-hmm. a mentor, whoever that mm-hmm. is. And then, you know, your team is your sports system. I think that's a really simplified way of understanding like how well one not even just to get like manage your anxiety I think just to like manage life like yeah life is like has its ups and downs like you gotta have you gotta have things in place for when it's good and when it's bad um so that was awesome um that was awesome so so I guess my next question is more so because I'm curious what was it like to write a book I hate writing so I'm I'm curious because I'm yeah yeah. I, I'm right there with you. Like I was told that I was a I was a terrible writer. I mean, I told you I I'm not good at tests. I dang near failed the SATs. Like I, I was not I was not good at that. I was terrible at test taking. Uh, but I've always been like a creative writer. So whether that's like poetry or spoken mm-hmm. word or just even fan fiction, I was a big fan fiction type person. But with this book, the reason why I love this book so much, I I wrote it how I spoke, like how I talk. Right. So if you and I were going to phone call, which we have. Right. We, we talked on the phone one time. I wrote it as if I'm talking to you. You know what I mean? I don't write it from some high level, giving some all these tips and telling you how to live your life because I hate books like that. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one thing I want. I did not want this book to be is some lecture. Right. I wanted to feel like you were on the phone with me. Like, mm-hmm. so there were times I, I cannot make this up. There were times when I was writing out chapters I had literally took in my phone and just and spoke. voice memoed it. And voice memoed it. I love and a voice memo. Right? Yeah. Literally. Yeah. So what you see when, when you read the book, if you ever get around to it, it's the idea of, wait, this is just a conversation with Wes. And honestly, that's what I believe the mental health conversation should be at large is a very casual conversation, an everyday conversation. So that's how I wrote the book. Um, yeah. and it was so fun to put it together. I would say it was one of the hardest things I have done in my life. Um, because a you're you're putting your trauma on a page and you're gonna share it with everyone that even strangers you know what I mean I'm just kind of like whoa that's wild and it's gonna live forever because words live forever um another part of it too was I had an editing team I had a publishing company actually you know help me publish the book but the it was it was one of literally the hardest things to do working off of a deadline having an editing team kind of edit my words that were, didn't coherently make sense grammatically. Um, so all those things made it very stressful and hard, but it was one of the most rewarding things I, I've done, honestly. That's awesome. So anyone listening, where where's the best place that they can get your book? Yes, uh, Amazon or Barnes and Nobles. So it's, it's available online. I mean, all, all around the world. Uh, uh, but specifically, if they're interested in getting like a signed copy or whatever, shoot me an email at wes at westwoodson.com. And I'd love to send you a signed copy myself. Awesome. Um, okay. I want to get into this next this next piece, yes. this next question, because I feel like not that we're pressed for time, but we we are coming up on time. Yeah. Um, what what are you doing now with The Hidden Company? Can you give us a little gist of The Hidden Company, what you're yeah. up to? Just dive right in. Yes. So the story of the hidden company really starts in sixth grade, if I'm being real with you. Uh, so when I was getting bullied for all these things with my test anxiety, 
uh, I actually was also diagnosed with a rare skin condition called vitiligo. Now, vitiligo, if you're familiar with it, it causes white spots to appear on your skin. So I have it on my hands. Uh, I had it on different parts of my body. And kids were calling me all kinds of names, like, you know, all these terrible names. And that's kind of where I had that core belief that kids couldn't be compassionate, right? And that's, but you're right. I think it's model behavior, what they see at home. But when I was in sixth grade, I was being called all these names. And I'd always do this thing where the spots in my, on my hands, they were, they're on my hands. So I would hide my spots in my pockets. I mean, I would wear hoodies to school. I would wear long sleeves to school just to hide myself, just to like really just hide myself. And that behavior just started to just repeat itself in different ways, right? Metaphorically, I used basketball to hide myself. I used Abercrombie and Fitch to hide myself. (laughs) You know what I mean? I used all these external things to hide myself. But when I got to college, I wanted to stop hiding, right? I wanted to be more open about my spots. And it was my sophomore year heading to my junior year of college before I got into that relationship I started with the process of being more open about my vitiligo. I had the privilege of giving a TEDx talk at Babson. um, And I gave a TED talk all around trying to be more open about my anxiety in which I shared a big picture on a screen in front of like a hundred people with my hands like this, right? I can't can't get more open than that. Um, But I started this this brand um, of trying to empower other people to love themselves unapologetically. And I started with hoodies because I once used hoodies to hide myself. And the whole brand is all like, as you can see, the hidden company and the logo is the words the hidden with the red line through it. I don't believe we should hide ourselves. I think we should embrace ourselves and love who we are unapologetically because we are enough just the way we are. And it's that brand that I always wish I had back in sixth grade to like give me permission to, to tell me that these spots are okay or tell me it's okay to not be okay. So that's where this brand that I've made, we talk about the things that we hide. So I do talk openly right now about my my mental health. Um, I think what was last month, we sold out of a line of hoodies that we created and we are donating 100% of the profits to mental health organizations. Uh, Going forward, we're producing content. So short films, trying to normalize the conversation around men going to therapy. We're calling it the strong conversation because we think obviously as men we think it's weak to talk about our feelings but talking about your feelings is one of the most strongest things you can do so the hidden company today is not just a clothing company i call it a media company so we create uh clothes content and experiences that help empower people to love who they are unapologetically and it's been a great ride i'm excited we have a small team behind me and we're just going at it we have a mission of trying to empower two thousand people we're at a thousand I think a little over a thousand people right now in our following, we're trying to grow our audience and we'll see what happens, but it's been a great ride so far. That is awesome. I love that you took something that was a symbol of like how you like hid yourself and didn't embrace, you know, certain parts of you into, I don't know, a way to then like shine light on it. I think that's so cool. Um, If people wanted to get in touch with, with the hidden company, where would they go? What would they find? I guess. Yeah, so right now we're sp- for those those hoodies I mentioned before. You can go to hiddenhoodies.com and you'll see you'll find our line of hoodies on that website. I'll send the link to to put in the in the show notes. Um, but you also go on to the hiddenco.com or follow us at the hiddenco on Instagram, uh, or follow me at West Woods on Instagram. I pretty much have everything in my bio 
uh, that you can access me from there. Uh, but yeah, if you ever see me in person, I normally have some in my car, just pedaling out, just, just sharing the message, just trying to empower people to love who they are. That's awesome. Um, I feel like we've talked about a lot, but I do have one last like question for you. If you could go back to young Wes, mm. young third grader, eighth grader, whatever it may be, one of your harder moments, or even in when you were in your relationship, like a really hard moment mm. and give yourself one piece of advice, mm. what would it be? That you are enough just the way you are. Um, I've been constantly trying to be on this path of, of, of proving that to myself, right? I think I've spent so long performing for other people to get other people's validation that I struggled to validate who I was, to validate myself. So if I can go back to third grade West, even, even what, night or 20 slash 21 year old West, right? And say, Wes, you are good enough just the way you are. You don't need this person. You don't need that sport. You don't need that, that those clothes to, to prove that you're good enough. You are good enough just the way you are. Um, and that's what I would tell them, honestly. Well, I think that is awesome. And I think everyone, I wish everyone knew how, how amazing they were just the way they are just being themselves. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and chatting and being vulnerable. I think this was an awesome conversation. Um, I'm excited for everyone to hear it. Me too. Me too. And I look forward to connecting. Like I said, when people follow me, I very much reach out. I'm like, Oh my gosh, we're friends now. I, I, hit them up in the DMs and I really treat it as if we're friends because I really feel like the more we can have a friendly and treat this as a human conversation, which it is, and treat the mental health conversation as that friendly and human-esque conversation, the more together, the less alone, the less ashamed people will feel around this topic. So you're doing amazing work. Thank you for having me on your show. I look forward to being listening. You have an audience member right here, a fan. I'm here. So I'm all here to support. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Wes for coming on the mental matchup and talking to us about just everything that he is currently in doing, doing his book, I have anxiety. So what his speaking engagements, but also just his own experiences of, you know, building your dream team and outpatient programs and everything in between. Um, I'm so grateful he could come on. If you want to get in touch with him, you can find him at Wes Woodson on Instagram and The Hidden Company at The Hidden Co. To follow along or get in touch with The Mental Matchup, you can find us at The Mental Matchup on Instagram or head to thementalmatchup.com. And of course, another huge thank you to Morgan's Message for presenting this podcast. We would not be here without them. If you want to get in touch with Morgan's Message, you can head to morgansmessage.org or head to Instagram at morgansmessage. With that, we will see you next episode.